are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This episode of the Traditional Outdoors Podcast is brought to you by Java Man Archery, building traditional bows since 1994. Java Man offers 12 models of hybrid longbows and recurves featuring accuracy-enhancing forward handles as well as Asiatic-inspired models. Greg Coffey's forte is short hunting bows that pull unusually smoothly, even with longer draw lengths. Greg's custom bows can be ordered in a variety of configurations, from plain to fancy, including hand-carved functional art in the riser. He offers all of his models in one-piece or two-piece takedowns using the bow bolt system. Now, Greg's newest model developed in May of 2018, the Impala Longbow, is available in lengths of 64 to 70 inches. And the Impala meets IFAA regulations for serious competitors on the target course. Now, I got to meet Greg in person earlier this year and spent a good bit of time talking with him. He's knowledgeable, easy to talk to, and just seems to be an all-around great guy. If you're thinking about a new bow, be sure to consider Java Man Archery and give Greg a call. And be sure to tell him you heard about Java Man Archery on this podcast. You can learn more about Greg's bows, place an order, or obtain contact information on his website at www.javamanarchery.com. Before we get started with this week's episode, I want to take just a moment to congratulate Zach Dorsey. He was the winner of our Bone Broadhead giveaway. Zach left us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, and his name was randomly selected from all those that left a review on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. If you've not already done so, head over and leave us a five-star rating and review for yourself, and that way your name will be included for any future drawings or giveaways that we do here. A huge thank you and congratulations to Zach, and thanks again to Jarrett of Bone Broadheads for working with us on this giveaway. Well, hello, Nick. How are you, man? I'm good, Steve. I'm uh, I'm really good. The uh, actually, I don't I don't think we since we've talked, we haven't really talked about this, but the uh, my life and longbows is published and available, and uh, a lot of people have already bought it, and I'm really excited about it. People reading it, and uh, I just want to throw out there that if you have read the book and you do like it, if you could throw a review on Amazon for me, uh, that would be great. Um, and how are you doing, Steve? You getting ready for uh, you're getting ready for well, actually you're in hunting season already now that we're talking. Oh yeah, I've I've, uh, I've spent I guess three three sits in the Georgia woods so far. I've seen deer all but one of them. I managed to sit through 14 hours of rain following uh, Hurricane Florence this past Sunday, and I saw one squirrel the whole day. But uh, the other two outings, I've, I've I've actually seen deer both times, and in fact. Uh, Yesterday afternoon, I I went to the woods right after work and had a nice little six point just dare me at about eight yards, eight ten yards, and I thought about it, but ended up letting him walk. I know the the piece of property that I'm that I was hunting. I know there's some there's some much nicer deer there, and I've only got two buck tags, so I hope it doesn't haunt me later. But I've still got you know three months over three months of time so i don't feel too pressured i I let him walk yeah jealous you get to jump into the season so quickly we still got uh well we got a we got a couple weeks left here um but looking in a one one spot i had was uh was okay not great i'm not that excited about it but i did find another property that's a little more urban actually that i think could really produce if i do it right and kind of follow some of the things from uh from uh, our episode with Crispin mm-hmm. and uh, 
I'm, I'm excited to check that out. I think it'll be a good little challenge for me. Is that the one property. you sent me the pictures of? Yes, the one that's, uh, it's kind of, um, it's where I used to turkey hunt and it's a, uh, it's a farm field. It's an, it, it was purchased by the, uh, by the state and it's, uh, it's still a cornfield, you know, most of the, most of the year or corn or wheat. I can't remember what it is. Um, but it, uh, there's always good sign over there and I figured it was always too hunted and too obvious. So I never messed with it because it's like, it's, you know, the river's on one side and there's a major road on the other side. And then there's private property bordering and half the property's open that except for the little stretch of woods button up to the river. But, um, I got to thinking after listening to uh, have to name drop again here, Jason Samkoviak's post or his DVDs actually, um, that's all really good travel right there they well, got a natural funnel yeah they got everything they need and there's three hot corners that i really want to check out so i'm, I'm pretty excited about it i'm going to go spend a little more time over there uh if i don't get eaten by mosquitoes because i don't know what it is this year but this mosquito hatch is just absolutely horrible here um uh, i've had to run the thermosail and, and before you you know yes we do get to hit the woods earlier but uh, i think yesterday when i got out of the truck it was 90 degrees so uh, there there are definitely trade-offs but i didn't have a dry thread on me by the time i got into my, my stand so yeah that is rough it's kind of wet early season here too but regardless i'm excited and then i get to go hunt with you pretty soon so that's that a couple be fun. couple months off yeah it's gonna so. be here before we know it yeah, I'm actually going to try to, uh, I've got to head down to one of the properties we'll be hunting. I'm hoping to do it maybe in the next two or three weeks because uh, I've already got a stand location set, but I, I want to have a backup with a ground blind. I've got to go ahead and get that put out, but uh, I'm going to make it a, I'm, I'm going to make it a hunting trip. So I'll do, I'll put up the blind during the, the, the midday heat, but uh, anyway, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's get to our guest. We're, we're, joined tonight again by mr todd smith and mr isaac justice how are you guys doing i'm doing well pretty good awesome we uh we kind of alluded that we were going to do this episode the last time we had you guys on and uh, i'll be honest i've, I've been seeing a well a couple of things i've been seeing a lot going on lately on social media hunting season is is you just heard is already kicked off in some areas a lot of hunting going on out west and uh some whitetail states have have opened up and uh just already seeing a lot of things that that make some of us scratch our heads uh plus the the previous episode i'll be honest i i didn't know what to expect but i've really got nothing but positive feedback um and had several people in fact even had a couple of the guests that we've had on that said that they really enjoyed listening to that episode. And uh, so I thought it was a good time to to get you guys back on and actually follow through on that promise to have a discussion around the uh, the top 12 pen- uh, factors of penetration. So glad to have you guys back on. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So as I said, most of what um, I got was positive feedback. I've had several people that say, you know, they've, they've thought a lot about this and some of the things we, we managed to put in really good context and it, it helped a whole lot. Um, there's also been, you know, there's, there's, I've listened to other podcasts from everything from traditional bow hunting to, to just regular bow hunting in general, where you don't need that for whitetails and that's overkill and all this other stuff. And, 
you know, it's hard to argue when when people are successful. So I'm not even, you know, I'm not even going to attempt to go there. I think all of these factors are important independently. Um, we're not all after Asiatic water buffalo or Cape buffalo. I do, you know, Tom Jurgensen actually just hunted uh, Africa this past year or this past summer. Um, and I'm sure he was worried about all 12 factors, but you know, it doesn't, all of all 12 aren't necessarily needed for whitetail. Um, I think there's several in this list that we're going to go through that, that do have a, a big potential to affect a whitetail hunter. Um, and at the same time, I would also say I'm a firm believer that there's no such thing as too much penetration. Um, so, and we'll get into some of that, but, uh, you know, I guess what would what would your guys' thoughts be on on that same topic of what's what's enough, what's too much when you start thinking about the these twelve factors of penetration? Well, I can tell I, you that if you take your bow hunting seriously, why wouldn't you want to take advantage of every little bit of arrow lethality or arrow penetration that you could you could? So just because something works or works sometimes for me isn't good enough because I've had failures. So that's why I really latched on to Ashby's top 12 penetration enhancement factors because he took the time after the Natal study to identify each one of these 12 factors and not only identify them, but to rank them in order of priority. So Somebody could be listening and they could say, yeah, I just don't buy it. I don't need it on whitetail. All right, that's fine. I want it on whitetail because if I go out, another reason, if I go out elk hunting next season, I want to know I can use my same bow, my same arrow, my same broadheads. I've got a setup that works for me no matter what I hunt. And I've lost deer before due to shoulder blades or poor penetration. And that doesn't happen anymore since I've switched to this. So not only does it make sense to me, but I've put it into practice and then I've seen the results. So then for me, I just kind of, I feel bad for the guys that just won't even give it a shot, won't even consider it just because it's different. So anybody else? Yeah, I'll kind of touch on some of my past experiences on that and just... I think a lot of it's perspective, and I think it's important to note why we do what we do. It's not that we are, uh, I've been told I'm unethical because I'm a momentum junkie, and all I care about is how deep my arrow goes into the ground after it passes through. But the truth is, behind all of these concepts is, uh, you know, it's a pretty cut and dry reasoning as to why we're doing it, and it's to be more ethical, and it's so that... I mean, it kind of makes me sick to think of guys shooting deer in the shoulder on accident. And, and those are the same guys that will argue just shot placement. But they hit the deer in the shoulder on accident, and then they're online saying, well, oh, thank the Lord it didn't go in very far, and I'll, I'll see him again tomorrow maybe on trail camera. What? Like, I'm sorry, but to me, like I said in the last episode, shot placement is assumed. Everyone is trying to make a good shot, and on the shots that don't go well, I personally would not like to have a maimed animal around my property that I hunt. I would just assume that I would rather kill it and take the meat and eat it and save me money instead of buying beef at Walmart. 
<laughs> so I just think it's, you know, it, a lot of it's perspective and experience, but we also just have to think about the why. And it's not always what guys are assuming. It's not that we are uh, promoting poor shots or being unethical or we're just momentum junkies. It's simply to be more lethal. And, and to me, it's not a matter of if you buy into that. It's not a matter of opinion. It is fact. And as Todd said, if you don't want to utilize it, that's your choice. I'm okay with that. I think everyone here recording today is okay with that. But when guys come and they ask for advice, um, it's pretty straightforward what they're going to get. It's going to be something similar to the to what we're discussing today, the 12 penetration factors. So, Isaac, I know you put yourself out there um, on this topic a lot, and I know you deal with a lot of, of uh, believers and non-believers, um, and that's probably a bad word. Let, let, let me rephrase that and say advocates and, and non-advocates of, of high FOC, high momentum, those kind of things. But I, I, I'm trying to get my head around how anybody could say they feel it's unethical to try to create the best penetrating arrow. Do they understand what how an arrow kills? No, most times not. But... We also have to remember what the market's doing. Uh, not, and, and this is something that we talked about in, in over PM. I, and my perspective was that somehow, in some way, I feel the trad community has somehow fallen into directions that the compound community has gone. And you guys know me and, and the way that my YouTube channel uh, functions. We try to relate to both as much as we can. So I do take PMs from both sides of the of the river on that. And no matter what weapon we're talking about, a lot of the push is speed. Well, it just seems that like when most people look at these 12 penetration factors, the number one thing that a person's going to grab out of this is, oh, so you just want me to throw a, a thing, a rebar at the deer. And then, and it's just the arrow weight comes up and we talk slow and we talk limited range. And then we talk, well, they're reacting and turning and you're going to end up hitting them in the bone every time because they're reacting and your air is never going to get there. And now that's unethical because now we just hit them in the rear hip and they're not dying. And, and it's just, it's rather assumptuous in, in a way. It's never really how it goes. And the people that pitch those are most times the people that don't have much experience with it. And I don't blame them. I just nod my head, smile, say it's okay and move on. Because if you've experienced, if you have experience with it, you know, it's not the case. So. And I guess the they, I don't know. I, every time I hear that whole speed argument, it's like I've seen whitetail duck arrows out of a near four hundred feet per second. Absolutely. Uh, you, if the animal is on alert and they're going to react, it doesn't matter what you shoot. The arrow is not going to impact where you were aiming when you released that arrow. If the animal reacts, speed. It, from that perspective, to me, that, that's a non-argument. But I don't want to go down that rabbit trail. That's right. that's probably a, a never-ending path. So, as we start talking and going through these these twelve factors, here's the one extra thing that I would that I would add. Collectively, these twelve factors will, without a doubt, create an arrow that has, in my opinion, the highest opportunity for maximum penetration. I don't think it can be argued. If you look at each one of these separately, 
in my opinion. You can't look at any one of these and discount that it does play an impact in how well an arrow performs. It Again, I'm not saying, by saying that I'm not saying, you know, whatever you're shooting today, if everything's perfect, you have a high rate of, a high probability that if you put the arrow where it belongs, it's going to work. So that's not what we're, that's not what any of this is about. This isn't about if you shoot a whitetail broadside and the arrow enters exactly at the back of the shoulder and passes through nothing but flesh and organs, you're going to have a dead animal. As long as your broadhead sharp, everything else can your arrow's probably going to pass through and everything's going to be fine. What we're going to be talking about here is the 12 factors that are going to make one uh, lighter bows perform better. Um, to increase the odds that you're going to have a successful recovery in the event that things don't go exactly as planned, which I've been hunting a long time, and that's probably 75 or 80% of the times that I've taken a shot at an animal, I can pick out at least one thing that didn't go as planned while I was, while I was executing that shot. Animal movement, I flinched, whatever that may be. There's always something that you can say that was not as intended. It wasn't perfect. I have, I've taken very few perfect shots at animals, not necessarily because of anything I did, just things outside of my control. Um, anything anybody would add to anything I just said? No, no, I totally, agree. I, I totally agree with you, Steve. And uh, I know we, I mean, there's a bunch of rabbit holes we could go down right now, but one of the interesting things, things I've heard since that our last episode had aired um, with Isaac and Todd was that it's this isn't a traditional thing to do like this like tuning tuning your arrows for maximum arrow lethality is is now deemed like a modern traditional thing to do like creeping on the compound territory thing to do where you you're spending too much time worrying about the science and, and you're somehow robbing yourself of the experience. And I just, that's something I'm, I think we have to be careful saying that stuff because really all you're doing is you're saying, well, I mean, you're insinuating that being traditional is being lazy in my opinion. And you have to go through some element of tuning on your setup. No matter how far you go, you have to tune somewhat. And I just don't see anything wrong with wanting to go the extra step if you want to take that and knock as many of these things off the list as you possibly can. Um, I don't know how that's any less trad than anything else we're people are doing well and, and I, I i know exactly what you're talking about i've seen i've seen those statements and arguments too and and you know i get what people are trying to say sometimes it's it's you know and it's and, don't sweat the don't sweat the small stuff right and and you're making it yeah. too technical you're making it too complicated in all honesty most of this stuff is not that complicated it's just you do have to put forth some effort and you do need to have a basic understanding of how your equipment is performing but it's it's not overly complex the other thing is, is a lot of times i see you know people that, that are shooting wood take offense that well, I can't get that high of FOC. No, but you can increase the FOC, and it's fairly easy to do. And 
you know, we've had guests on here that even talked about doing that with wood. I do it. I've done it with wood for years. So it, it can be done. It's, and, and the other, the other argument, and then we're going to get into these 12 steps because we got a lot to go through and I, I don't want to spend, you know, all the time just kind of hyping this thing up or, you know, well, well, the, the native Americans didn't do that. Au contraire, they did do that. I mean, if you go and look at the materials that they were using, um, you know, uh, dogwood shoots and sourwood shoots and and you know uh, natural river cane they always used the larger end of that of that shaft as the front end because it increased the front of center and it increased it it made for better air flight absolutely and then they put a rock on the end of it which was heavier than the rest of that wood shaft so again for everybody listening we're not we're not trying to say that you have to do all these things all all i want to do is get on here and and let people hear what we have to say and think about it and you're going to hear as we go through this there's some of these things in here that i actually don't necessarily follow there's one i was looking through these again today and there was one that i read that i didn't remember and i had a flashback to um, our hunt in michigan last year nick so when we get to that i'll I'll have a little thing to throw in there but you know it's just I guess think about them, read them. Don't just discount them because it's uh, not traditional or or it's too complicated or too complex. There's plenty of stuff out there to take the complexity out of this. It doesn't have to be that difficult. You just have to spend a little time reading and trying to understand it. So with that, um, let's, let's just kind of jump in here and kick these off. And this first one is one that we were chatting about just before we started recording and someone on the call said this one would be pretty quick. So we'll see how that plays out. Well, I do uh, want to <laughs> jump in quick if you don't mind. I want to jump that? in quick if you don't mind, because sure. I was musing about something because y'all were kind of getting <laughs> off on this. This is how the industry seems to be. And I can tell you that if somebody came out with the top, 12 structural design enhancement factors for a stick bow. Nobody would buy one that didn't have all 12 in it because everybody jumps on, hey, I want a little deflex. I want a little reflex. I want a high performance string. I want this. I want that. When it comes to bows, people seem to embrace these new developments. And what what I want to say too about the top 12 penetration enhancement factors They're all an opportunity. That's all it is. It's been proven. It's out there. It's an opportunity. You can implement it or you don't have to implement it. I personally don't mind if you don't, but I know I'm going to because my bow hunting is important to me. So I just wanted to throw that in there before we started. I won't disagree with anything, anything you said there. And I think we even may have mentioned this the last time, Todd, it's, uh, it's it's funny to hear people. I have personally heard people make a statement about how expensive an arrow is <laughs> that just bought a seven eight hundred dollar bow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the math there just boggles sure. my mind. How is it that you put the? In my opinion, I've got to be careful how I say this. <laughs> the bow. The, the bow is a bow is a bow. Yes, they're, some of them are prettier than others. Yes, there's slight performance characteristics. Yes, you may shoot one better than the other, but the bow is not what is doing Absolutely. the work. It's the arrow. 
And when you hear people complain, or God, some of the arrows I've seen people hunting with it that look like it's they've been through a war because they they won't spend the money to buy a new set of arrows, and I'm just sitting there going, I don't right. get it. But anyway, we we did it. Yeah, again. yeah. That's well, what I said, and we for said, decades said I was a custom arrow builder, and, we- <laughs> and so I had it boiled down to a mediocre mediocre bow will shoot excellent arrows very well. But the best bow on the market's not going to shoot crappy arrows well. Just not going to happen. What's a what does a Samic Sage cost these days? <laughs> Hundred and twenty bucks, I think, at my shop. <laughs> at, at, Less than your arrows, right? And that exactly, yep. exactly. <laughs> and there's people that you know. I I've got a. In fact, if uh, I've got to get one or two on the ground, but I've got a little, uh, believe it or not, a Darton recurve. That I picked up mm-hmm. of somebody on. I, for, I apologize if you're listening. Who I bought that bow from because I can't remember. I bought it for fifty bucks shipped to my house or something right. ridiculous. It was like fifty or sixty bucks. And if I get around to it, I'm gonna actually hunt and and hope I'm gonna try to take a deer with that thing. And it's it's a great little bow, but it it it's ugly as sin. <laughs> so anyway, I, we're, we yeah. we keep going off these tangents. We're never gonna get started, much less finish. So number one, structural integrity. Who wants to take that one? I'll take any one of them you, you pitch up there because I like them all. And, and, well, you said this one was easy, well, so take I'm, off. And, you know, the cool thing for me is I watched the doc give this seminar many times. And I've recorded it and rewatched it. And, so, and I've sat around the campfire chatting with him. So I know how it goes from the guy that did the testing. And pretty much... Structural integrity is one number one because if anything fails, your arrow or your broadhead fails, penetration stops. Game over. It's just that simple. So you have to research your broadheads, you have to research your arrows, and you're looking for strength. Structural integrity, number one. So I'll pose a question that I get asked a lot all the time, and I think it'd be useful for viewers to have kind of all of our opinion on it is... If we're talking about strength, why isn't that, does that encompass the things that I'm buying out of the package? Do we have to go aftermarket components? Is there ways to make it strong without putting aftermarket components in our arrows? Is it more about the broadhead? Is it more about the insert? I think that's something to cover here because it's like literally the number one question I get asked. Should I do 100 grain brass? Or move to a 200 grain head. Well, I like both, but if you had to have one or the other, or how would you make that system complete, rather? What's your guys' opinion on that? So I will step in here because I know this is one of the areas that I probably tend to stray from the standard. Um, Anything that so two things in my humble opinion. Anything that has a hole in it, insert threaded insert is weak anything aluminum that should be the first one anything aluminum is weak period anything with a hole through it like a a, a, a threaded adapter in my opinion is weak a threaded um ferrule it's weak it's weaker than the than the rest of the projectile because it's it's smaller. By the time you actually cut the threads in a threaded ferrule, the actual meat that you have left in that of metal around those threads is very small. So therefore, 
I have stayed away from anything threaded for the last three or four years and been very happy that I chose to do so. Now, there have been some developments lately that have steered me back to that. Uh, companies making stainless steel threaded inserts. That's one. Um, I know there's a couple of companies now that are actually making um, uh, solid one-piece two-blade broadheads where the 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 threaded ferrule the blade everything is made out of high carbon tempered steel and so i've actually started diving back into that but that's just my thoughts is anything that makes up the core of that component that is that creates a weak link is going to weaken the entire era is what i'm trying to say i think that's a good thing to say yeah i know that uh when we talked steve you were mentioning something about I forget what company it is. It must be Toughhead maybe that has the insert itself is a glue-on adapter for their glue-on uh, broadhead. So that's kind of something that no. you would lean towards. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's that's what I've been using for a couple of years now. And that is those those specific ones that I use are made by John Hand. Um, runs a It's a very small little shop. He actually does machine work. This is something he does on the side. Um, but it's tr- traditional archery solutions. I'll throw a link in the okay. show notes if anybody's interested. But it's a it's a stainless steel one piece insert adapter. So you you basically use a glue on head, same as you would with a wooden arrow, except that that insert and the adapter is all one solid piece of stainless steel. And he does those from around two hundred eighteen grains all the way up to three hundred grains. Okay. Um, and you combine, in my opinion, you combine that with a, a solid glue, and I'm not talking about hot melt. In my, That's just not me. I'm going to spend the money to make sure it's as close to being the same as one solid piece of, of metal as I can. So I use 24-hour epoxy, same thing they use with golf clubs to glue carbon shafts to golf heads. Um, the, the stainless steel insert adapter with a glue on head and a 2-inch or more uh, aluminum footing on the outside that fits the shaft tightly. So, I mean, my front end of my arrow, the only thing that's going to break is if it snaps that shaft, you know, a couple of inches behind the broadhead is the only way that's going to break. And the only way I've actually been able to make one fail is shooting it into concrete. I think it finally snapped on the fourth shot out of a 76-pound longbow. Yeah, that'll work. Eight yards. <laughs> so, you know, it, it – from a structural integrity perspective, I, I would just about put the arrows that I that I build and that I know Tom Jurgensen builds because he's doing pretty much the same thing against just about anything on the market as far as sheer structural integrity. Yeah, not to get us off topic, but I figured it'd be useful for all the questions I get. It's be easy just to tell guys that listen to this. So, Todd or or Nick, anything you'd add to that one before we move on? No, other than nope, I don't it's think like so. The chain. You know, the strength of a chain, it's the weakest link. So when I was listening to your build, Steve, I was thinking, yep, it's going to push the stresses back. And that's where the failure is going to be because that's where all the stresses are going to go now, back behind where your interior uh, post is. And exactly what you said, Mm -hmm. the only time you've seen a failure is when that happened. But a lot of guys see that failure right behind the broadhead because they haven't built it up like you did. So that was a a good – uh, that was good information for the for the listeners. And I will add one more quick thing. Um, and this, I also have not shot a three blade broadhead since this occurred, but um, it actually 
prompted me to, to really start down the road of using the setup that I do. I was shooting a three blade, well-known three blade broadhead. I'm not going to name names, um, mounted onto a steel 100 grain adapter, threaded adapter and a brass insert. I wasn't footing at the time. No, I wasn't footing at the time. Um, I made a shot animal dropped and twisted. Uh, and this was on a, this wasn't even a, a mature whitetail. This was on a young freezer. I mean, this was a, a meat deer. I mean, it was, it was small, maybe, maybe a hundred pounds. And when it dropped and spun, the air hit that knuckle joint. It, I can only assume it rolled the point on that three blade broadhead. I got no penetration. There was actually no blood on the arrow shaft when I found it. It bent and broke that 100 grain threaded adapter at the threads and then proceeded to break the uh, brass insert and bust the arrow and the arrow fell off. There was no blood on that arrow. Um, but I found it with the, the, the brass insert was still glued and hanging on the side of that air shaft when I found it. So structural integrity is a big deal is all I'm getting mm-hmm. at. And anything out there um, can fail if you're thinking about the, the standard components that are out there and I'll just, I'll kind of leave it at that. There's ways you can make them all better and, and we'll move on to the next one, which is Aeroflight. And I know, um, Isaac, I'm going to go to you on this one first. Cause I know this is something that you spend a lot of time doing, doing videos and, and talking to people on. So, you know, give us your quick couple of minutes on, on Aeroflight. Aeroflight. I, um, when guys message me about Aeroflight, it's always interesting. You have two groups of guys. You have the ones that, uh, want me to guess their spine so that they can order tomorrow and everything's supposed to be perfect. Or you have the guys that are willing to test things out and do what I ask of them in order to achieve perfect flight. Either way, we find ways to make it perfect. I am a very large proponent of bear shaft tuning. Uh, if a guy is more or less skilled, it really doesn't matter. I found that I've bear shaft tuned out to 30 yards. I've bear shaft tuned to 10 yards. I put on my feathers. The broadhead shoot perfect. It's no secret. You spend some time, you do it. Everything works out. Uh, I made a video about FOC, and we'll cover a little bit of that, but broadhead planing. And the number one way to have good broadhead flight just from a hunter's perspective is going to be achieving the second factor. So like I said, if you're very skilled, go ahead, do it as far out as you can go, get it as perfect as you can get. If you're not as skilled, if you're new, if this is something that you're just kind of hearing about and you're thinking, oh, maybe I want to try bear shaft tuning. Well, do it at 10 yards, do it at five yards. If anything any distance with your bear shaft and you get a perfect reading is better than not doing it at all and just buying a 500 spine because someone online told you to and you put 125 grain head and you fletch it and then you check flight i mean we just i mean when guys come to me like that i i feel for them because we more often than not we end up buying new equipment so to me it doesn't matter your skill that's that's something that 
guys talk about, I'm not good enough. I just started or you're making it too difficult on these new beginners. No, I'm not. Okay. I was there. I was there at one point and I've been doing bear shaft tuning for over 10 years now. And I can tell you when you slap feathers on, no, it doesn't change your reaction. Yes, it does. But no, it really doesn't. The feathers hide the little bit of reaction uh, that it changes. I would rather have my bear shafts flying perfect. I'm able to practice with them half the summer. I don't even fletch my shafts. I, th this summer I ran bear shafts all the way through July. I didn't even fletch until August. And then I started shooting with fletched arrows. To me, arrow flight, I mean, it's not number one, but to, in order to find my ability and my range, my cold shot range, all, all the factors that are going to make me be the variable in a hunting situation, to me, arrow flight and bear shaft flight is just number one. You know, it's, I need to be able to see my bear shaft. For me, for the guys I work with, I just, that's what I want to see. I want to see that you're releasing correctly, that you're calm, cool, collected at full draw and pull through your shot. And I think more times than not, I think we end up being the variable in a hunting situation, like you said. I mean, 75% of the time, 80% of the time, something goes wrong. Well, yeah, when our arrow impacts a deer, a lot of stuff can go wrong. They can react. But I guess what I'm getting at is if we are the factors that are making our hunt go wrong or our arrow has bad flight and we impact the animal sideways because it didn't recover and things happen, you know, that's on us and we can't, our equipment can't make up for it. As Todd said, you can have a super expensive bow and it's not going to shoot a, an arrow that isn't tuned well, well at all. It's just not going to work. So I just, for the tuning side of things, if we can take as many precautionary steps to make sure that we aren't the factor that is going to make us lose our animal, that is number one for me and the people that come to me for tuning advice. That's the best way I can put it. So a couple things there. First, I, I do want to say, and I may have been a little bit high on the 70, 70%. It sounds high now, but I'm sitting here thinking through that. And, you know, when you think about, and maybe I overanalyze every shot or every animal that I've taken, but, you know, when I sit and think about how many of them, well, you know what, I could have, if I had aimed a, another inch or two inches lower, I could have compensated for the amount of drop. Those are the kind of things I'm talking about. So I just want to make sure that, you know, anybody listening is not thinking about these are all horrendous failures. These are just little nuances that I think could have been better right. um, is the first thing. The, the other thing I was going to say is, so, and I, I guess I'll ask this of the group, and I gotta, I gotta be careful how I word this because I want to make sure I get what I'm asking across. But when you're thinking about these twelve points of penetration, is anybody in this discussion right now of the of the four people on this call is any of you thinking about how that's going to make your arrow perform on the 3D course? Um, I will step in quick and say yes and no. I'm going to say both. It's not the answer you're looking for, but. So let me try. What I'm trying to say is if you were going, if all you were ever going to do is shoot targets, would you care about this list? Absolutely. 
Okay. I would tell you, and, and there's a reason I'm asking. I'm sorry. What about you, Nick? Uh, <laughs> I don't know because I don't just shoot targets. You're, you're trying to read my mind where I'm going with this, Todd. Oh, I'd pay attention to Aeroflight and FOC. I okay. would want my but flattest so- shooting, most accurate, most consistent arrow so I could beat the next guy out if I cared about 3D tournaments. Two and three okay. are extremely important for those that want to shoot 3D. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so, so now that everybody said that, I'm going to tell you where I'm going with where I, where I was going with that line of questioning there. When I hear people say, "Well, you're making it too complicated for the new guys," if that new guy is only going to be out shooting at targets and and inanimate objects, I could care less. Don't make it. Don't make it technical. Pick up a bow, grab a few arrows, and go fling arrows and have fun. But as soon as that individual has the idea that he's going out and he's going to attempt to take an arrow and send it downrange to take an animal's life, now this list becomes extremely important to me, or at least that you should be shooting an arrow that's going to give you the highest likelihood of performing a quick and clean kill. That's where I was going. Well, I'll put it this way. For me, it totally depends on if the person is with me or online. Online, I could care less what you have. If you're just starting, I just want you to shoot, like you said. Mm-hmm. But yep. like my roommate, and he helps me with my uh, YouTube channel. He's my editor. He's my filmer, Garen. He started off with a longbow, and he wasn't starting with anything less than what I would approve for hunting. Reason being... I want him to have the opportunity to hunt with that equipment as soon as possible. And by that, I mean, I want him comfortable with his arrow's trajectory, with the speed of his arrow, with how well that arrow tunes to him and how he's been able to mold with that setup and how he has good confidence in where he can look at something and he doesn't necessarily have to range it. He just looks, he flings, and it's accurate. And for someone that wants to get in and have that hunting set up and practice with it all summer and then go hunt, I do care a little bit more, especially because I know it's not difficult if I get to that person first. If I can say, I could get pretty close to spine. If I just know, okay, Samick Sage, okay, 45 pounds, sounds good. Let's get you some full length 400 spine whatever you want let's throw a 100 grain brass let's start with a 200 grain head hey i'll flop these different point weights in the mail uh let's see how it tunes that's so easy and look at just doing that they cover a ton of these factors that we're going to be going over today but if i don't get to them first and we're influenced by a whole bunch of other people that are telling them different things well then it does make a big difference and then it's like shoot whatever when you want a hunting build let me know (laughs) Well, I guess the roundabout way I'm trying to get to a point is where did the idea become that all of this was supposed to be easy? I love that conversation, but sadly, we could talk on that for three hours. <laughs> right. I, 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 and I, I guess I'm just I'm being a bit facetious here, but I'm sitting here thinking, listening to this. I'm thinking, OK, so we've we've talked about people that says we're being too technical and we're making it too difficult. and We're confusing the, you know. When did who made the decision one day that everything about hunting was supposed to be easy? That's what the hell brought us the crossbow, and I know that's going to piss a lot of people off. (laughs) 
but it's uh, it, it 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 really comes down to that. Why this is not all supposed to be just easy. There there should be, in my opinion, there should be a a bit of a struggle here. That's what that's what makes it that, that's what makes it what I treasure so much. Is it's not easy. If it's if it was all easy, who's who's going to do it? I guess is where I'm going. I, I'm right. I'm 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 getting on my soapbox. But you guys get what I'm saying? Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I, it's funny that, and it's usually the target guys that are the ones that are the extremely technical ones, and they go in for, you know, I mean they they strive for good aero flight, but I don't think anybody really says anything to them because they just kind of put that in a different category altogether but for some reason when you apply it to hunting it's just like heresy i, I, I don't know but I, I saw where you're going with it though steve like i and i didn't i wasn't i didn't give you a response really just because in my opinion i mean obviously arrow flight would i would say yes it's important um and if I was a target archer, yeah, I definitely think I, I think two and three, like you said, you guys said, it's really important. But otherwise, I would say, well, you know, get your good arrow flight and go have fun. Yeah. Um, it, I, it wouldn't be as important. But I, I totally agree with you, Steve. If you're going to even attempt to go into the woods, and that's why I have such a hard time, you know, with some of these Facebook groups because I see people, you know, they'll post their setup, and I desperately want to say something but know what's going to happen if i do and that's 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 the sad part a lot of us are getting that way it's just like you know if i really want to jump into this conversation but all it's going to bring me is grief um last point i will make back to something you said isaac is about you know the 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 bear shaft tuning and you know once i can get to that point i know that my bear shaft is tuned correctly broadhead selection really doesn't matter I wish I could sit down and keep track of everybody that I see that makes these, uh, well, you know, I can see my error flight and it's perfect comments and then equate that to how many of them come back later at some point in time and say, what's the best, what's the best broadhead for, for error flight? Because mine's mine, my broadhead's not flying <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and again, I, I literally want to sit there and say, I can prove to you, I can take my setup right now and I can take as long as it's the same weight broadhead, I can glue on a Magnus, a Grizzly, a Tough Head, a Cut. It doesn't matter. I'm gonna get the same Aeroflight out to 25, 20, at least 20, 25 yards. Well, here's something interesting: the Grizzly Stick Double XL. I can unscrew the top screw, turn it to the side, and shoot accurately. It had literally have the broadhead sideways. Huh. Doesn't matter. Now. So someone comes with a post and says, this broadhead's not flying right. I don't even, it's, I either take it to PM and say, hey, buddy, uh, let me help you out with the tuning. Or it's like, whoa, <laughs> right. you know, you didn't tune at all. Because I can literally put my head sideways and shoot accurately at 20 yards. <laughs> so I don't know. Todd, Todd, you've been very silent here other than my one question to you. Anything you would add to Aeroflight before we move to number mm, three? Only that, uh... One of the reasons that Ashby stressed the arrow flight that we didn't touch on is that when you drop the string, you have X amount of energy to transfer that arrow. And any of the oscillations, the flex at the shot, 
that hasn't been dampened out by achieving good aeroflight is a waste of energy. And then also at impact, the flex of the arrow, if it's flexing as it impacts, it's wasting mm-hmm. energy and lateral stresses and frictions. So that was just another one sure. of the, the meat and potato part of the aeroflight that Ashby always points out. And I've got one thing I want to bring up, but I don't know whether I, I definitely want to do it at least on the next one, maybe even later in the list. So um, we'll, we'll go ahead and move on now. So the third one, I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time on this one because this is really, um, we beat this one up quite a bit the last time we talked. But so forward of center, uh, FOC, EFOC, uh, I think um, somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, you know, to, to be considered as FOC is what above 19%. Is that right? Well, EFOC. EFOC, right. EFOC is starts at 19%, and then ultra EFOC starts at 30 Correct. Okay. And those were two okay. thresholds. At 19%, he saw a substantial jump in penetration once the heavy bone was breached. FOC had nothing to do with breaching the heavy bone or the heavy bone threshold. It had everything to do with increasing penetration from that point forward. And then at 30%, there was another substantial jump, and he never ran out of benefit. So right now, the, the, the people who embrace FOC for penetration factors, the more the better. Repeat what you said about never, he never, he never re- reached a never threshold. Exceeded. Like, like uh, when he hit, say, 40%, he didn't see a diminishing return. Well, I was getting ready to say, but Todd, what about diminishing return? That's all I ever nah, hear. It didn't happen. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it was like uh, compounding interest. So at 19%, you had this, this percentage of increase of uh, penetration, which he quantified. At 30%, you had more. At 35 you had more. And it kept going back to the beginning. It, it was strange. It's hard to describe other than compounding interest. And it never, ever reached a threshold of diminishing returns, ever. And, you know, I really wish, and this would get, so now I would go into the, the my geek side of this to try to figure this out if I had time, and I really don't. I just know it works. Uh, I will also say that I know from experience that increasing FOC improves aeroflight almost to the point where it it can make up for other shortcomings, almost like bigger fletching can, mm-hmm. in, my, sure. in my opinion, Absolutely, in my experience. Yeah. Um, so I wish I knew if it – if is that what had the um, – increase the effectiveness from the Ashby studies. I, I guess I just, part of that makes me want to understand what about FOC increased that, the penetration factor. Was it the aeroflight? Was it just the mass weight? Was it the mass weight where it was in relationship to the weight of the rest of the shaft? That's what I, you know, I would love to understand a little bit better. We don't necessarily have to get into it here, but it's well, just. Well, sure, but you know, all of I'll, the benefits are cumulative like these 12, but when you have most of the mass weight up front and most of the mass weight is already penetrated that near side bone, now it's you pulling. exactly now the mass is pulling that lighter tail along. 
instead of the heavier tail trying to push, which then flexes the shaft, which robs you of penetration, that stiffer, heavier front end is just pulling the rest of the projectile with it, and it's just way more efficient. See, makes perfect sense. And I guess, you know, one way you could look at that is, and I really like the way you stated that, if you took an arrow and dropped it into a body of water and actually could film it going through the water and time it. I mean, you know, maybe you time it. If, if all the weight's at the front and that arrow can just drop straight down, it's going to do that. If you dropped it in knock first, it's going to lose so much energy as it flips over into water for the broadhead to get, or the, the heavier end to get ahead mm-hmm. of the light end. It's the same thing, just exaggerated, right. I guess. Yeah, I um, had a video on this oh, on my YouTube that I basically broke down all of FOC. So if something that we said they felt that it wasn't necessarily covered enough, uh, I would definitely suggest take a peek at that video. I got quite a bit of feedback on it, uh, and it seems seems like it's doing pretty well for guys to understand some of the penetration things. So I just thought I'd shout that out. Also, so I guess I, w- I guess real quick. I'm sorry, real quick, Isaac, any of these that we're going through, if, if you've got videos, um, if you would link those to me and just or shoot me an email with a link to the video and how it relates to one of these topics. And we'll also do the same things with uh, some of the Ashby videos, and I'll make sure I try to put all those in the show notes. Now, go ahead. Sorry. No, you're good. Something I just want to say before we move on to number four, something that I get a lot of questions about is FOC doesn't help with penetration or sorry, help with bone breach. I get that a lot. And I would just like to say, for those listening, we're going to cover that in number 12 when we get there, and it's going to be time of impulse. So I just thought I would say that because to some, they've heard that term, and they go, oh, okay. And then some there, it's new. So if you are new, this is a really good reason for you to stay, listen, let us get all the way down to number 12, and to stick with us because we will cover why FOC doesn't aid in bone penetration coming up. Okay. And the last thing I will state is this. So number three, FOC and number 12, which I won't mention now, we'll get to it. But those two also combine and tie back into what Todd was previously talking about with regards to aeroflight and efficiency of transferring energy from the bow uh, to the projectile and that is the you know the the weight the more if you're shooting a a, a light arrow you end up with a lot of lost in, lost energy from the bow because of the of the oscillations the heavier the arrow is the more it absorbs that energy so, and once again it's time of impulse because the heavier arrow has more time on the string so it has more time to absorb more of the energy exactly Yep, no different in a longer draw. Right. Yeah, I didn't mean to get us off topic, but I, I know that comes up. That's so okay. guys might be questioning at this point our our integrity behind the podcast. So I just want to say it's coming up. <laughs> Understood. So <laughs> moving moving on to number four. And uh, so this is one that I think a lot of people tune out because they see it as, and, and I think it's really just the wording. They see it as overly complex, and that is broadhead mechanical advantage. Um, and really, when you get down to it at its simplest level, it's a longer, narrower head or less wide head is going to penetrate better. It's not any more complicated than that, really, as long as it's 
cut on contact and those kind of things. Um, anybody want to chime in on this one? Nick does. <laughs> I do? You're too quiet. Of course. You're too quiet. <laughs> I'm fascinated. I'm absorbing everything. You guys are the experts, uh-huh. not me. I, I'm just, I just got into this recently. All right. Um, uh, uh, but no, ahead, I, Nick. I, I, yeah, shorter, wider heads. I mean, I don't know if there's even much to, to say about it. Um, you know, you hear, you hear about the three to one ratio. I mean, that goes back a long time. Um, I've never, I think the widest head I've ever used is a Magnus classic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was the, what, one, what is the it, 135, 160, yeah. the 160. I think that's the MA one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It used to be. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, but the ratio has got to be pretty, cause it's still kind of a long head though. It's just got a wider wingspan than some of the other heads do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also shot, I think the. The Zwicky No Mercy for a while, but even both of those are still the ratios there. They're not. They're not three to one. They're not three to one. No, no. no. The three to ones are more along the lines of the the Grizzly Tough Head. Gotcha. Okay. Um, the old the old Hill the old Howard Hill was a three to one. Um, I always I always think of um, like the uh, the like the Montex and stuff like that that are super short mm, and yeah. wide and. And, uh, I've seen some, uh, I've seen some other broadheads too. I know there was a, there was a Tusker model at one point that had, that was really super wide. Um, and yeah, I, I just, there's, I don't know. I never shot him well. And I mean, it doesn't take much to see that if you've got that much surface area, I mean, it's just, it's working too hard. I don't know. In layman's terms. What about you guys? I got a funny story quick. I got, this is going to age me a little bit. Okay, so I got a... You're the youngest one on this. On, yeah, don't even go there. You're like 18, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Funny, Nick. Funny. <laughs> yes. Okay, 22, I was way off. <laughs> okay, well, it's going to age me in terms of put, let people know how young I am, Okay. So, yeah, go. so I got a Snapchat video. You guys know what Snapchat oh, is? Oh, God. <laughs> so I got a Snapchat video from a buddy, and he had a no-name three-blade on the end of an arrow, and he goes, watch, I'm going to drop this on my roommate's foot. And he dropped it, and I laughed because nothing happened. And I knew that he had... <laughs> I, I laughed because I knew that he had Ashby 315s in the apartment. And I was like, oh, dude, go ask him if you can drop that on his foot. And he's like, hey, can I drop this on your foot? The kid's like, no, that might actually go through my foot. And I'm like, seriously? You are a bow hunter. We have argued before about this as just buddies about what you should be using on the end of your arrow. I just had him ask to use his broadhead on your foot. He already dropped your own broadhead on your foot. And you're scared because the other one's supposed to penetrate, but you won't use that one because you say it's not as good as the other one that we already dropped on your foot. It's like, what? Marketing works. I know. I was like, (laughs) what are you doing? So I will throw a wrench in this discussion on number four and potentially get some comments from you and, and Todd. Nick already knows this. This is one within reason, and I'm not, God help me, I'm not talking about, <laughs> you know, P 
pizza cutter broadheads, which is another one that came up on the, <laughs> uh, on the forum discussion. But this is one that I go against the grain on a little bit. And I'll explain, again, within reason, I'll explain why. I shoot grizzly heads. I, I have nothing against them. However, my go-to head that I routinely go back to that I'm very confident with and I've had very good performance with is that wide one and a half inch Magnus. I know the mechanical advantage is not as good as it is on the Grizzly, but on a cut on contact head like that, as sharp as I get my heads, I don't worry about it. And my experience with my antelope a few years back showed me that I'm, I really don't need to be worried about it because even though that head was wide, it performed exceptionally well, understanding it was sitting on top of an 800 grain arrow coming out of a 70 plus pound longbow. I get it. But for what I shoot and the equipment that I shoot, that's the, probably the one area in this whole list that I kind of go against the grain a little bit. And I go out to the wider head just because I only get the chance to put that arrow through an animal one time. And that wide, that wide head gives me more cutting potential, meaning it's, it's, it's a higher chance. It's going to encounter, uh, veins, blood vessels, and, uh, critical organs when it goes through the animal. So I'll pause and see what anybody has to say to that, but that's just, that's just the well, one okay, area pause. on this list that I kind of, <laughs> I, I had a, I had a similar experience with that head too. Uh, I mean, I've only killed one buck with that head. Uh, it, or, or one deer period with that head. Um, but I mean, it was, it performed very well and the, and the results were, I mean, I had fantastic blood. It did, it did everything it needed to. The wound was ghastly. Um, so naturally that means that everyone else should shoot that head too. And it's going to do that every time (laughs) and it's going to work every time. And I will argue fervently for that head on Facebook. <laughs> Even though okay, it's not now made. I'm jumping in. No, but no, but it's seriously though. I, that that's a good white tail head. I mean, it doesn't. But I agree with you, Steve. You said you hit the nail on the head. Super sharp. You know, I, I would not. Other, I would not shoot it at Cape Buffalo or Asiatic Buffalo. Yeah, a lot. A lot of the. A lot of the factors are already in there, and you, on that setup anyway. On your setup, um, mine was similar. Uh, so it, I mean, it's just, it's different animals, you know, literally and figuratively. So, (laughs) all right, go ahead. Go ahead, Todd. Sure. Sure. Well, this is interesting to me and it's a perfect example of what we talked about that you can pick and choose which of these 12 you want to implement. And it's cumulative because number four was in Ashby's study, second only to EFOC and ultra EFOC as a penetration enhancing factor. But like you said, Steve, you're, you wouldn't use that head on a cape or an Asiatic water buffalo. And people need to keep in mind that this test, all of these 12 were identified and quantified on Asiatic water buffalo that had to breach a near side rib. So this is one that I also sometimes go against the grain because I will shoot like the 200 gram Maasai that Grizzly Stick has. It's not straight edged. You know, it's a convexed head. 
it's not three to one. But if you shoot through your animal like you did on the pronghorn and it's sticking in the dirt 10 yards past, you had plenty to get in and out of both sides. So that's a per per perfect example of how you can pick and choose which one of these you want to implement or how closely you want to stick to what it's, uh, you know, that particular number. And I, I, will, I will be clear, not, not trying to, I do want to make sure because people have, have heard me talk about this and um, it, so it didn't, it did not go all the oh, way through. Okay. It did, it did break both shoulders though. Well, there you go. Uh, and remained in, and remained mm -hmm. intact. Um, so, you know, the, the, it, it, it didn't okay. pass through. Um, a three to one probably would have passed through. Um, you know, so I, I know there's a, I know it's, it's, it's a three to one's a better mechanical advantage than what I had within what I shoot. I get that. I understand it, but the, the type of head that that is the cut on contact two blade, it's in my opinion, it's marginal. Um, again, a Buffalo Cape Asiatic, I wouldn't shoot it, but for anything in North America, if you're doing, especially if you're focusing on the other 11 factors, I think you can get away Absolutely. with that. Absolutely. So, Isaac, anything before we move on to five or will we beat this one up enough? No, I, I'm good with saying if you have 11.5 out of the 12, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, shaft, <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't say this one without cracking up because of the, the Facebook post we were, we were talking about, but <laughs> shaft diameter to ferrule diameter ratio. Um, yeah, you, you don't want something passing through the animal after the broadhead. That's a bigger diameter than the ferrule of the broadhead. I, I mean, Honestly, I would just think that that one makes sense and you shouldn't even have to explain that one. But as we were talking about today, we saw a post this week on Facebook where, and he may listen to the show. If he does, I apologize. But the guy had built his own footings, which I strongly, strongly suggest people do. A footing is, is imperative. If you're shooting carbon shafts, a footing on the end of those shafts does so much to increase structural integrity, which is number one. But... These things were made out of brass that looked like they were a, an eighth of an inch thick and <laughs> stuck out way past the the, the head. That's going to that, – I'm not going to say you can't kill an animal with it, but it's going – even on a broadside shot where you don't hit any bone, that is going to severely impact the amount of penetration you get. Oh, absolutely. That's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. I also think it's something that a lot of people don't think about, though, especially if they're new. You're not wrong. I, I, I mean, I agree. I mean, I, I don't know how many times. I mean, how many times have you seen somebody come out of a, a shop or something, like even at the range, and you'll have a, you know, maybe maybe the shop didn't have a, a particular size target point in stock or something like that and gave them a shorter target point or smaller diameter target point on an arrow or, you know, vice versa. You know I mean? I mean, it, it happens. And I mean, yep. until you say anything about it, nobody, they're not going to know about it, especially if they're new. I mean, I, I shot heads that were too thin for the diameter shaft. I was shooting when I started for a while just because that's all they had. And that's what they gave me. 
Um, well, the industry is not helping you too much. When you go no. buy standard diameter arrows, you're probably going to end up having a lip depending on what you decide to use. And that's not necessarily that beginner's fault either. So, I mean. That's, that is a good point. And I will say on that one post, I, I unfollowed it because I, I just couldn't sit there and stare <laughs> at it. But every <laughs> every comment that I saw before I've unfollowed that thread was positive. I mean, it was people giving the person sage advice. It, I appreciate they it's took going, the time to do that. I, I do too. I really did. Like you said, um, though, it's pretty straightforward. We just got to be careful how we're doing things. But it was honestly a valiant effort. And in in theory, it should be a lot easier now for the average shooter. I mean, you know, yes, there's some of us that are still shooting some of the older aluminum shafts that are really large diameter. Yes, there are people that are shooting wood that is a larger diameter, but you have to taper those shafts to get them to fit inside the glue-on broadhead, which effectively does the same thing. Um, but the other factor here is look at the popularity of micro-diameter carbon shafts. Mm-hmm. That's a big factor in this is because once that broadhead goes through, there should be almost no friction whatsoever on those micro diameter shafts. Well, and, and Ashby studies quantifies it again. So if your shaft is the same diameter as the ferrule of your broadhead, that was the baseline. As long as it was 5% smaller in diameter, you gained 10% in penetration. And it didn't matter if it was 6%, 7%, 8%. As long as it was 5% smaller, you gain 10%. And if it was as little as 5% larger, you lost 30%. Uh, Todd, you're using math. That's, that's too complicated. <laughs> it's not uh, traditional. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but what is the effective range of that, Todd? That's usually what comes up after that. <laughs> the effective range of that—that's that's the archer. It, it doesn't. It doesn't matter what it, what you're talking about. It's it's the effective range. How far away can I be? Gotcha. <laughs> Which always not far me enough. Up. We're talking. <laughs> we're talking about bow hunting, and you've got people trying to get into these arguments, talking about they can't take their eighty yard shots if their arrow weighs that much. And I'm just oh, it's oh, mind numbing. <laughs> <laughs> this is this okay. is this is quickly turned into well from the gates we've been joking about having a heard it on face saw it on facebook section <laughs> this is true <laughs> saw it on facebook <laughs> and and it, for everybody listening we're doing this in good fun it we're is really it's in not, good fun we're not uh, you know some of it i do have to scratch my head though but i'm i'm you know if look if guys want to take an 80 yard shot on a bull elk uh, you know what? I can after after actually being in very close proximity to an elk uh, in the last couple of weeks, I can say I get it a little bit better now. That's a big yeah. target. But if you're talking about taking eighty yard shots at a white tail, I'm sorry with a bow. I, oh my! It just, <laughs> everything everything about it just makes me cringe. Well, you know, um, you you laugh, but there has been quite a few threads lately on one site page in particular in the last month that has been new people asking about effective range of a traditional bow at a certain poundage. Well, here, this this it, might be it, a good time for me to, to step in for one second about what I tell people when they come to me about this. I say, and oh my, am I going to get roasted on this? But 
whatever, send it. Um, your bow poundage is your range. Your arrow weight and all these 12 penetration factors, but arrow weight is going to affect trajectory the most out of these things. It, and the arrow weight is going to be your penetration. So you got a 40 pound bow, dude, why are you trying to get 35 yards out of that thing? Just I was keep it say, in. Are you saying a 40 pound bow gives you a 40 yard right. range? I was really getting ready to No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm, it's, no, it's good that you One brought that up. Per yard. No, no. You mean uh, you mean Steve's good out to seventy three on deer, but eighty makes well, him I'm, sick. Oh, I'm, see, Todd threw that math out a while ago, and it just really messed me up. It was too complicated. And then I, you, you said you know poundage equals your range. I'm like, I'm doing the math real quick, going forty pounds, forty yards. No, I, no, but. <laughs> People are unscri- unsubscribing oh. to your channel right now. <laughs> right. Well, now We're that Steve made it all just guy. terrible, let me clear some things up. Your bow poundage is going to if determine I your range. If somebody else would. <laughs> so go oh, ahead, my sorry. gosh. <laughs> no, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, yeah, maybe I've worded it a little poor, but let me, let me finish here. Let me finish here. Your bow poundage is going to determine your range because you have limited energy. So 40 pounds, don't be trying to get 40 yards. With 20 max, you're shooting 40 pounds. Let's think about what that's doing to the arrow speed. And regardless of what your arrow weight is, are you really going to accurately be able to shoot that far? If I mean, yeah, maybe if you gap shoot, you're string walking. Of course, there's always those people. But on, let's be realistic here. Let's be realistic. 40 pounds, 20 yards is a great max. If you're shooting 60 pounds, yeah, I can shoot my arrows 30 yards no problem. Pretty dang flat because that bow has a lot of energy. 80-pound bow, even more so. So I just think these range uh, conversations, I always jump in. I say, dude, you're shooting a 40-pound bow. 20 yards is great. Set up your arrow to penetrate awesome. You know, shoot... 500 550 600 if you're comfortable shoot the heaviest arrow with the highest foc that has the trajectory that you're most comfortable with and roll with it see where your range is comfortable at but make sure you can penetrate so that's kind of what i was trying to point out see and i'm usually just searching for a gif and then i get bored and then i just stop (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well and and now i mean i'm gonna have to recover i mean i I had a brief brief moment of just elation that i was going to be able to start making 70 yard shots and then i just (laughs) jerked the rug right back up from under my feet Uh, but i but i do get what you're saying and i'll even so we've we've thrown a few shout outs here i'll throw in you know jason sam koyak just had a, a podcast about um uh, era performance. I listened to and, that. And he it was, was great. He was talking. Yeah. He was talking a lot about, you know, the, the, and I shouldn't say it was era performance. I think he, the context of it, he was really talking about how the, the trend has been towards lighter bows and how to make those lighter bows more effectively. And what, basically what he was saying is you got to maximize the amount of energy that you've got in those lighter bows. And there's no arguing whether you want to say you agree with these 12 factors or not, or if you want to, you know, if you, if you choose to believe in, in FOC, EFOC, UFOC, any of that stuff, bottom line is it does make a difference and potentially it has a better, bigger impact when you start getting into those lighter weight bows 
from a sheer performance perspective because you're maximizing the energy transfer. Absolutely. And it's going to, we're going to hit that on number six here when we come up to it on why that is. So, so let's just jump right into that because we've, we've kind of bounced. In fact, part of this, I just realized I've actually already brought up because I, I jumped the gun a little right. bit. But, uh, so number six is error mass uh, or weight. So that really what we're talking about here is total error weight. So jump in, Isaac. Well, I think Todd uh, should take lead on this one. He, he started it with the time of impulse on the, on the string. So, Todd, if you want to describe that for us. Well, sure. Arrow mass is uh, he's just talking here about heavier arrows absorb more energy from the bow, just like we said. So he's recommending and saw that, like before we knew about the FOC and all the other penetration enhancement factors, we just knew that heavier arrows penetrated better. And then when Ashby was looking into it, he realized greater arrow mass, better arrow efficiency, more energy gets into the arrow because of that time on the string. And when people are having a hard time absorbing that, it's easy when you say, well, look, you know how some bow manufacturers say you have to have at least three grains per inch or four grains per inch, or you can't even shoot them in this bow or avoid your warranty. There's a reason for that because the energy is staying in the bow. It's not transferring to that light arrow. And so then the bow's getting slammed every every time you shoot. And so it may, then it starts making sense. Ah, so the heavier my arrow, the more of my energy from my limbs actually goes into the arrow. Absolutely. And a heavier arrow sheds its momentum slower. It retains its energy longer. And so we always say use the heaviest arrow that you can live with that trajectory. Like Isaac was saying, if you have a 40-pound bow... Yeah, you really don't need to be shooting an 800 grain arrow because 800 is better than 600 because it's going to affect your accuracy. It's going to affect your range. It's going to, it's just going to make things tough. You need to shoot a heavier arrow that gives you acceptable trajectory. Yep. <laughs> Nailed uh-huh. it. Anything else to add there? Uh, I just like on? to give other people uh- a chance to chime in. I mean, I don't have anything I, else to say on the arrow you, mass. You said that you said that really good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> took uh, you took all my notes well, away from I me. I want to throw so in the great. one last thing then, because all momentum is not created equal. So you can oh, have yes. a medium weight arrow that's super high speed, and you're shooting downrange. Now, mind you, this is the math again, and it has nothing to do with our hunting ranges. It's just to prove a point. And you can have a heavier arrow moving slower. And because this is my answer to guys that are telling me I have to be able to shoot 70 yards at elk. Sometimes I'm just not going to pass up my opportunity and I'm shooting a 350 or 400 grain arrow. Well, when it gets there at 70 yards, the only thing it's been losing since it left the bow is speed. That's all it's been losing. It's speed. And Mm -hmm. when it gets there, it's got... 350 or 400 grains of punch left in it. Not much. And that's why these guys might hit their animal, but they don't get their animal. Whereas if you have that heavier projectile, the one thing it's not losing is mass weight. So when it gets there, a 650 grain arrow or heavier still has 650 grains or heavier of punch. So even though the momentum figures may have started out the same, the reality of how the arrow works on an animal is not equal. 
Yeah, you brought up a really good point that actually wasn't in my notes. So this is great. Really, really good. I did testing on this. And I'll, Steve, I'll have to send you another video link. I know it's a shameless little promo for me, but it makes... Nope, I would rather you send them all. It makes sense. I did the testing. We had a lab radar. And yes, I know this is a traditional podcast, but this is with a compound. Ooh, darn. It... It follows, the arrows don't care what they're flung out of, compound, trad, doesn't matter. The more speed is the more resistance on that shaft. So lower speed, lower resistance. An arrow that is going, say, 300 feet per second has to overcome four times the resistance of an arrow that's going 150 feet per second because resistance is squared in our big equation of... uh, resistance coefficient so i know that that's more math for you steve and i don't want to melt your brain but and i can explain it a lot easier and i've actually used this this example in the past with people go ahead um, stand in stand in front of me at at 15 20 yards and i'm gonna i can i can only throw any object so hard and so fast would you rather i throw a ping pong ball at you or would you rather I throw a baseball at you? Right, sure. You can't you can't catch it. You just yeah. got to let it hit you. Right. Which one which one do you want? And it's you know the I can the, when it leaves my hand that ping pong ball is going to be moving faster. But it's going to bleed off energy so fast it'll probably never even make it to you, but the baseball will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so. Yeah, I hear that a lot. That's that's a good one. Nick you awake? Yeah, man. No, that's <laughs> that's all great explanations. I don't think there's any. I don't think you can explain it any better. You, you broke right. it down into nerd terms and layman terms. <laughs> I think we're good. <laughs> hey, move, moving on to number number seven, broadhead edge finish. Um, yeah, this is another one that I'm probably not going to agree with everybody. So, so let let's. Uh, yeah, uh, who wants to start here? Well, I'll I'll just give the Ashby report findings. How's that? Yep. And, yeah, with it. Sure. and that is that uh you know, in traditional circles we we basically have three schools of thought. We have the the Howard Hill rake the edge with the corner of the file to make mini serrations. We have the file sharpened Fred Bear uh system which don't hone it just file it with the file which has more microscopic teeth on it and then you have the honed razor smooth and stropped edge and um the honed razor smooth and stropped edge outperformed all of the other uh broadhead types uh by 26 percent and 60 percent over the coarse serrated howard hill edge and that's well, so. I want to be clear here because it, we're going, we're probably going to discuss this okay. a bit more. But when you say had an advantage, what you're saying is it had an advantage in penetration, not necessarily in lethality. Um, it had a 26 percent deeper penetration over the well, we'll say the Fred Bear style, and a 60 percent deeper penetration over. The, Over the Howard Hill style, but okay. when you look at the blood clotting cascade, the razor smooth honed edge also has an advantage in producing blood 
and uh, minimizing clotting. Hmm. I'm going to jump in quick on that just simply because I kind of know where Steve is going with this and I can kind of start that off in a way. And what I think what Todd is talking about when the nerd terms, Nick here. Yeah, I'm a nerd. All right. When a broadhead that is really smooth cuts a blood vessel, there's no disruption. Well, there is, but we, we limit the disruption of the inner lining of that vessel as much as possible. And then we are able to uh, prolong that uh, blood clotting process and we have less tag ends on that blood vessel for fibrin to attach to blood platelets to clot. So this is totally nerd bomb stuff, but it's important to somewhat know that if, if you care about your hunting, like Steve has said at the beginning, you just got to kind of know why you're doing things. Steve you're going to have a totally different belief and that's totally fine. But the thing is, is this is stuff too, that with the game that we are pursuing, Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily need the 26% or the 60%, you know, but if you were going after something that you feel like you might want to enhance, I think it's common sense that we're all probably going to take advantage of that. So I think it's important to note that when you're going over your stuff, you are still taking note on the other 12 penetration factors and this is simply you choosing what works best for you and what your equipment and what you believe and have confidence in so i just thought that would be smart to point out so what was the name of that sure what was the name of that index the what i've never heard that before the clotting index yeah i don't have the official name here because i don't put it in my seminar either because it's just too uh, complicated isaac might know hemorrhaging flow chart yep what is it so it's he said hemorrhaging flow chart. You disrupt the lining of the vessel and that releases a protein prothrombin. Prothrombin reacts with blood plasma to form thrombin. Thrombin catalyzes uh, the conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin, which will attach to tag ends of your cut. And then that creates like a little web that's going to uh, grab blood platelets and cause your clot. So I'll just save you the research, and there you have it right there. I, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. <laughs> hey, you got to get that thrombin flowing. And yep. I find that absolutely <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time. Hey, man, you know that. what are you going to do when you're away at college and you just got that extra 15 minutes on your hands and it's raining out? You just you look up things like blood clotting. So... I cannot yeah. wait to drop this at the campfire. <laughs> <laughs> Rob and John are gonna. Rob John and John and Jamie are gonna look at me like, you don't, you don't understand the words that are coming out of your mouth, do you? Oh, that, and that that really would not be a new development. <laughs> no, um, it wouldn't. <laughs> That's going to my next book, Thrombin and Fibrin. Oh, guys! Uh, oh if only God. you knew. But no, that, I'm just so I nerded mean, out on this; it's unreal. Well, no, that's a really interesting stuff. I mean, I guess the only comment I had on the whole deal was that I've cut myself with a bow saw and I've cut myself with a razor blade. And I can tell you which one bled a whole lot more, and it was the razor blade. Yeah. <laughs> I think of and this see, more for bleeding and blood trails way more than penetration. I, I even take this somewhat out of context. So, yeah, it's a good way to put it, Nick. Yeah. So, 
<laughs> I got a lot. I got a oh. lot of thoughts on this one. Um, so here, I, I guess first off, um, I've I, I have used and still will use both methods for sharpening broadheads, and then I'm going to tell you some of the reasons why I generally stick with what works best for me. Okay. Um, so but to what Nick said, I would actually tell you some of the worst bleeding I've ever had from a, a self-inflicted cut. Accidental, not intentional. Um, <laughs> just get that out there and make sure people understand that. I'm not that, testing. Which I find I'm, hilarious. I'm not, I'm, not <laughs> testing, I'm not testing this stuff on myself. I just, it's, you know what? I'm clumsy. Um, Facebook is making I, Steve cut himself. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm tired of the struggle. Uh, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow, we've really gone off the rails here on this on this podcast. Um, so I've probably had worse cuts from where I feel like I could not stop the bleeding from a filed edge than from something at sharp. Typically... In fact, I've actually cut myself with a knife before, and, I mean, and I'm talking about a very sharp knife, like a, a, a Havilon blade. And I have to actually sit there and go, did I really cut my, that felt like I cut myself. Did it really, oh, yeah, there's a little bit of blood coming, and then all of a sudden it'll start bleeding. So it's like it takes it a little while. Um, where And again, I've cut myself on a filed edge, and it's just like, I mean, you just, I can't get it to stop. But... I have sharpened to a a honed and strop edge using both the um, the KME and the other sharpener. I can't remember the name of the other one off the top Lansky. of my head. But Lansky, yes. I've used both of those. I've used the the same basic idea of a system that they had for the Simmons Sharks. Polished edge. I've used, um, you know, wet uh, emery cloth advancing in grades and then going over so i've done that and no doubt about it they get good results and i've i've killed a lot of animals that way my biggest challenge with that method is what do i do if for any reason i need to touch up a blade in the field because i i don't have a kme sharpener with me all the time i don't have the wet sandpaper i don't i mean it's it's just a it's a effectiveness perspective of a lot of times when I'm in the field, I don't necessarily have all that stuff that I, if I need to touch up a blade. Well, take because, two arrows. <laughs> well, and I do, but you're, you're putting arrows in and out of quiver. So you take an arrow out of the quiver, you put it on your bow, you finish your hunt, you slide it back in the quiver. Every time you do stuff like that, you're especially on a extremely honed edge, you're going to be reducing the, the sharpness of that every time it touches something. Um, with a filed edge, and Nick has watched me do this, and I don't sharpen with a file the way most people sharpen with a file and consider a head sharp. I listened to Jason talk about this, too. And, in fact, I want to pick up the phone and, and call him. I guess after this airs, I might have to. But one of the things that he talked about is when, when you hear people talk about sharpening with a file, they're raising a burr and then they're knocking that burr off. And if they stop there, I agree 110% with what Jason said. They are going to have a sharp edge, but it's going to be that ribbon. He called it a ribbon something, but that's effectively what they have. And if that gets knocked off, that head's now dull. And I know exactly what he's talking about. I take my file sharpening a lot further than that. 
Once I get to the point where I've knocked that burr off and I have a fairly sharp head, I continue to file in in uh, even numbers of strokes on each side of the blade with a constant decretion in in the amount of pressure applied. So effectively, I'm somewhat honing with a file. So by the time I get to the last strokes that I'm putting on, I'm actually not even letting the weight of a six inch mill bastard file go to that head it's i'm i'm it's extremely extremely light pressure and if i have time i'll even strop the blade on leather after that no it's it's honestly i mean i gotta brag for steve a little bit here this time because uh he does he's got crazy good feel with a file um and it looks like he's it looks like it's just hovering over the top of the broadhead um, and that's just probably from years of doing it, but I mean, it, you know, I, I can get it to a point where I can get that burr and knock it off and, and keep going. But even uh, I, no matter what I hand him, you know, he usually will take these super like microscopic passes through. And I just, I have not got to that level yet. Um, you know, and I, I usually and have I, to, and I know. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, that's fine. You know, I usually have to. I usually try to rely on the strop to get it to the, where I need to be, or even uh, jeans, like Jason says, or you know, stuff like that. And but, I haven't, I haven't tried the jeans thing yet. I need to try that. That's one thing I haven't done that Jason is constantly talking about. It makes sense. I just never have done it. Mm-hmm. Um, I w- and I was just going to say when I when I say sharp and I know my 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 arrows are heavy. I think I'm you know 460 grains up front. But when I'm ready to hunt with an arrow, I can literally take and and just the weight of that broadhead will take hair off your arm. You, I mean, you really don't even have to apply any additional pressure. It's that sharp. So it's a filed edge, but I'm and I'm sure there's still some very small micro serrations to it but it's probably close to a honed edge with a file if that makes any sense yeah i feel like you're right there like i i feel like you feel like you disagree but you're like right there because mm-hmm. even think about it i'm only taking mine to four thousand grit on my kme that's not even that high i could go right i could go a hundred and sixty thousand grit <laughs> you know 4,000 is still rough in terms of fit, finish, polish, in terms of stropping. So I, I feel like you how think much... you might disagree, but, dude, you're right there, especially if it's taking hair yeah. off your arm with just the weight of the broadhead. I mean, that's sharp. That's sharp enough. Well, 4,000 4, grit is, yes, I agree with what you're saying, but what people, and I see this all the time, especially when people are saying, I can't get my head sharp. That 4,000 grit is only part of the equation. The other part of the equation is how much pressure you're applying when you move that, that metal surface over that grit. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, we could do we could talk for three hours just on sharpening. Sure. Yeah, I get what you're saying. but And I'm sure it would be riveting. <laughs> I could blow your mind with facts. Sharp stuff is fun. <laughs> I like how... I like how uh, how your young mind is twisting Steve into agreeing with you. (laughs) I I don't know that he did or not. I think I'm still arguing with him. But uh, that that is an argument. And I will say that's the one factor that I see. Every and and Nick will tell you this. uh, I think um, when when the first time he came and hunted with me, we were 
we went through a sharpening session. And I, if I remember correctly, the, the, the main thing that Nick said was, wow, when you say light, you really mean light. Because um, it's, it, and, and everybody that I've ever talked to that was sharpening challenged, especially with a file, it, that's the factor they're missing is what, yeah, you're, you'll get that, get that bevel the way you want it with those hard, heavy strokes or even a bigger file. But when you get down to wanting to get it really sharp, you, when you think it's light enough, cut that in, in a fourth to get to that, that really light pressure that you need to apply anyway. So you're saying that the buzz cuts, not exactly the best penetrating head on the market. <laughs> you have no idea how much I hate that broadhead. Because <laughs> people oh, come really on. seem to like that broadhead. Lifetime head. warranty. <laughs> Nick knows all the buttons. <laughs> Lifetime warranty. Are they are they going to come and recover my animal when I lose it because of that that broadhead? Broke? Ask the owner. Yep, they will. Uh, Listen, I, I'm just going to tell you the first the first pack of broadheads I bought, and I might have brought this up last time, but it, it's funny what opinions will do to new people. Because I walked into the shop and, you know, again, the person the person told me to buy, I got a pack of 145 grain ace broadheads and a like a 16-inch mill bastard file. <laughs> uh, that's what they yeah. and I like I said I had, if, if there was 70 if there was 75 uh, grains left in those heads if there was 50 I'd be shocked <laughs> I think I still have them somewhere I gotta find those but um, they, he told me that a um, he, that I should run and this is part of the reason they told me that I should get a burr. I should get them sharpened. I should get the burr and knock it off, and then run the file backwards across <laughs> once to to put to put the the serrations in there because mm-hmm. they'll grab they'll grab arteries and stuff on the way through. Right, and that well, was, and that's that that's that raking edge that yes, uh, it, it, yeah, it was, and that's the Howard Hill thing, right? The raking edge yeah. or the yeah, yeah the coarse edge, and and he. You know, that was the, that was what he thought was what you did. And he was adamant and killed deer with it and said, that's how you do it. I always get good blood, blah, blah, blah. And that's what I thought you did it. I ruined an entire pack of broadheads. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I do want to touch on one more thing before we move on from this one. And I guess we're going to have to move on because time is ticking away. But this, uh, this topic is just like so many others that we're talking about you know, as far as will one of them, will any of these edges kill an animal? Absolutely, 100%. Yes. The one thing that I always like to bring up with this, too, is properly placed, arrow through both lungs on a white-tailed deer, a fill point will kill that white that antelope, that animal. But now you got to recover it. So from a from a broadhead sharpness perspective, penetration is one thing, but to me, it's maximizing the opportunity for a blood trail that the average hunter can follow. Yep. Yep. There you go. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And sharp is sharp. Doesn't matter how you get there. Yeah, that, that is exactly. I don't right. think it's even worth uh, Steve and I arguing over this because you know, <laughs> oh, sharp fine. is sharp. <laughs> If if the broadhead is sharp enough that you're scared, it's going to cut you if you look at it hard. It's going to be effective. Hundred <laughs> percent. All right, moving on, and this is one that um, I, the the number eight 
this is one that I said I, I had kind of forgotten about um, that I've actually got a thought on this. Um, so number eight is shaft profile. Um, and I know I've read this one before, but when I went back and, and reread it tonight before the show, um, yeah, so, several things jumped out of it on this one. So uh, the way I'm looking at it right now, the way Ashby were or way it's worded in Ashby studies is on all shots, tapered shafts show an 8% penetration gain over parallel shafts. And then the second part of that's the one that really got me, and a 15% gain over barrel tapered shafts. Right. Um, I've got a short story to tell on this one, but um, anybody have anything they want to only want to talk about? This one's pretty straightforward and easy to understand. I think. I have nothing. Well, no, I want to hear your story, but the what Ashby said was the reason behind that, or what he thought the reason was was that because the front end was stiffer it also uh was building in extra foc uh it was helping to defeat the impact paradox or the impact flex because the portion right behind the head was so stiff as the arrow was penetrating by the time the tail end got there it had already recovered from that flex mm-hmm. so those were some of the whys behind it and then there's also the friction perspective, right? Yeah, I always kind of say it's the think about the watermelon seed between your between your fingers when you squirt it out. Mm-hmm. You know, once that <laughs> fat end gets through, it's just less and less and less friction as the thinner knock end comes comes following. Exactly, hundred yeah, makes perfect sense, it, and it even goes back to what we were talking about on what. Uh, shaft diameter to ferrule diameter if the broad head is the is the biggest point everything that follows is just going to have an easier path right right so i i hunted last year not completely but i spent a good bit of time hunting with wood shafts last year i had a really great experience and one really poor experience so which just goes to show you that you know some of these things can work great sometimes and other times not um, my buddy Tom gave me a ton of heavy spine wood arrows because he he's a he's a fanatic like uh, myself now and and Isaac and you know he just couldn't get the performance that he wanted from wood and and admittedly he was building up towards his Cape Buffalo hunt that he went on this year and his Asiatic Buffalo hunt he's going on next year. So he just said, I'm, I'm done fooling with wood. Well, as I got looking through those, I found some very odd shafts in that batch in that they were barrel tapered. They weren't cedar. I couldn't figure out what the wood material was. And the only identifying mark on these is they had TW and a number stamped on the side. And I think it was TW245. And I played around with these things, and they actually shot really well out of several of my heavier bows. Um, in doing a little bit of research, I found out that what these shafts actually were was some shafts that were sold under the uh, product name of Tallahatchie Arrow Works. It was Dan Quillian who actually um, marketed and sold these things. And I know his son, Dee Dee. I shoot with him every week. And the 245 was the deflection. Well, they were 245 deflection, which means they were under 250 spine, roughly, for those that understand spine and so forth. But because they were barrel tapered, they were even more forgiving. And they just, they flew fantastic. So 
I played around a little bit. I ended up with my tried and true 160 grain Magnus with a 150 grain uh, woody weight. So I had 310 grains roughly up front on a wooden arrow, and they flew marvelous. Um, I shot a buck with that arrow in October of last year, and it was a very high, almost straight down shot that, you know, I, I simply had the confidence in my arrow and bow setup that I knew I could get through the vitals even on that high impact. And it, although the penetration was good, it really wasn't as good as I thought it would have been. I got a pass through and it was stuck in the ground, but I've had arrows that I've done the same thing with that actually seemed to do better as far as how, for making a joke here, what Isaac was saying, how much energy was wasted and it actually stuck in the ground. Um, and I really didn't even think about this shaft profile thing where it says barrel shafts, 15% less penetration again it got the job done but it was I, I still could notice it was less than i expected for an 800 grain arrow um flash forward uh, a month and i'm up in michigan and got a shot at a, a buck up there and for lack of without going into a lot of detail complete and utter failure and in fact i haven't shot those shafts since then um so very similar except this was actually a broadside shot and Anyway, deer was not recovered. Part of that was possibly due to a torrential downpour that occurred in, within five minutes after the shot was made. But um, it was extremely bad performance. And looking back at this, I just have to wonder now how much of it played into the, the barrel tapered shaft. Interesting. Uh, and the, the, I was going to say those were also marketed as super cedar Yep. Uh, they were made out of uh, poplar, but the super cedar was C-E-E-D-E-R as a play on words on cedar shafts. So a little history there. But um, So that's my two stories. Anybody anybody got anything to pipe in here and add? Because this one's pretty straightforward. Nope. Or nope. just move on? Nope. Okay, we'll move on. Broadhead arrow silhouette, um, which comes down to a, a, a smooth transition and a slick arrow finish. Uh, meaning a smooth transition from the head to the rest of the arrow. Um, another reason I like the glue on with the, the insert uh, adapter combo. Um, and then a lot of the, you see a lot of the uh, Teflon finishes and so forth, the, the Stoss heads, which stood for slicker than owl uh, stuff. We'll keep the podcast clean. Um, Grizzly puts this finish on. A lot of, a lot of companies put that slick ceramic or teflon finish on their heads to to increase the the slickness of it um i got a few thoughts there but before we go any further anybody anybody want to chime in here on anything they they would have to say here on most two blade heads it definitely passes number nine you get towards uh more mainstream 125 100 grain three four blades eh so I just think it's pretty straightforward, and I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. Todd, anything from you or Nick? Well, you know, on, on wood arrow glue-ons, yeah, they're almost all really nice, smooth transition. Not all. Like the old rib techs, they, they weren't. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the steel force, you know, they have quite a bump at the end of their, their ferrule. Uh, and But a lot of guys who are switching over to carbon in that – 
there's a there's a ton of screw-in heads and a lot of them do not have a nice transition from from that we still call it the ferrule the ferrule to the blade mm-hmm. and and you do want to look for the the most smooth transition you can find and some of them are just god awful they're just abrupt almost like a 90 degree angle yeah and i i've never shot anything well i mean i have but it, it it's always bothered me even when i didn't know what i was looking at to have like a weird transition there or any unnecessary ridges or welds or anything like that just seemed wrong so yeah. i've i've never I've never used anything but something that that looked smooth. I mean, it just kind of makes sense, you know? Mm-hmm. So without going into, um, well, I, I'm going to say I'm not going to go into any brands. If, if you guys want to bring them up, it's completely on you. But I do want to hear your thoughts on, so, you know, if you, if you read um, specifically what, what is in, you know, some of the Ashby wording, it's, it's around uh, ferrules with bumps or irregular surfaces, those kind of things. But what about um, what about blade venting, large or small? I, I mean, I, to me, anything that that disrupts from a solid plane uh, on that broadhead surface would have the the potential to create drag and reduce penetration. But you know, what do you guys have to say or think about that? Uh, I'll jump in and I will say it depends on where you hit. And by that, you know, you don't have to look too far into that. It's if you're hitting a little far back on whatever animal you're hitting, intestines, you know, it's kind of the gut area. None of that stuff's under tension. So as you pass through, some of that stuff can end up lodged in those ventilations. Now, if you hit muscle, well, muscle's under a lot of tension, and the front edge of your blade is going to separate, and that's not going to allow that muscle to get caught inside of those vents. So I had a buddy that shot through a Grizzly Stick XXL this last year, and I actually have it on a video on YouTube, and he, he passed through dang near lengthwise. He had stuff lodged in it, and when he looked at it, he's like, dude, I literally have stomach in my broadhead, it's stomach. But I, I know mm. plenty of other people that have used it that have pa- passed through broadside and there's nothing in it. And I mean, it comes down to just, it makes sense. Muscles under tension, intestine, gut area isn't, and that can allow it to end up getting lodged in it. I, I, never thought I would have that. a harder time penetrating muscle than I would guts. So to me, it's not something I necessarily look for unless we're talking high aerospeed in which it can some, somewhat make a little bit of noise. So that's why I like solid finishes, but I've not seen it affect penetration in terms of things getting caught inside the vents. Todd? And Ashby doesn't like the thought of the venting just because it opens up that possibility. Now, in some of the testing, he tested vented, non-vented, side-by-side, and didn't see any difference in that specific scenario. But still, it's, it's like we're all using our common sense. 
if you've got holes in that, especially if they have sharp edges, 90 degree edges, it's just inviting bone splinters, chips, like stomach contents with something to slow down that penetration. Now, see, when I started, that was marketed to me as a good thing. Stuff getting stuck in there and uh, Yikes. catching things on the inside. and Really? I've never heard that. Yes. Hmm. And the idea was that it would get a bunch of stuff in there and blow it out the other side. <laughs> Which is doing to do nothing but stop up the exit wound. <laughs> exactly. <Right>. It was... <laughs> I, I, wow. I, I think I got that on a forum somewhere when I first started. I think it was on Archery Talk. Oh, <laughs> wow. When I, was, when I was on there. Yeah, yes. On that, on, on that bad note, <laughs> let's, move on to, let's move on to to number 10. The wow, dregs of yeah, Archery that's, Society. <laughs> uh, that, that's one I've never heard before. Wow. Uh, um, yeah, we're so we're we're really creeping away on time here, guys. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move this forward pretty quickly. Um type of edge bevel i know we talked about this a lot in the previous discussion we had um there's a lot of argument back and forth about this one though you know i'm gonna say one quick thing and then see what you guys may or may not want to add to this but here's what it comes down to to me one i can get both edge types extremely sharp doesn't matter to me if it's single bevel or double bevel um, so from a sharpness perspective, I would say if, if, if you're extremely challenged in being able to sharpen one or the other, I would much rather you go with the, with the edge type that you can sharpen well. So if you can get a double bevel really sharp, but you can't a single bevel stick with a double bevel until you learn how, um, and vice versa. The other thing I would say is unless you encounter bone, the performance differences between the two are not going to be all that drastic. And I'll caveat that real quickly. But if you encounter bone, it's, it's a proven fact that double bevel is going to perform better against bone because of the, the rotation, the twist, the breaking of the bone instead of wedging in place. The only other caveat I'd say to that single is I bevel. have seen the S wound that comes from the single bevel spinning through. And you can't deny that that wound channel is amazing. How much is it needed? That that that's a topic of d- discussion. But um, I would just say that for me, I would rather you know that you're shooting an extremely sharp broadhead for most game. Again, most game as opposed to just shooting a double a single bevel because it's going to split bone better if you can't get it sharp. And I'll leave it at that. Todd, you started to say something. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Oh, I said single bevel because sometimes we have a, a word in our in our head, and I, I think your your word said it's a proven fact that double bevels are better on bone, and I, I just wanted to. Oh, say that I'm that, sorry. Yeah, that was a that was a misstep. That it was single a single bevel, bevel. Are better on bone. Excuse but me. see, you described it perfectly, and in 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 the study, it was it was just like you said. Only when no bone was encountered, it ranked number ten. But when heavy bone was encountered, it almost shot to number one. Right. Because if you can't get through the bone, penetration stops. Now, we don't always hit the bone, so you're exactly right. Sharp broadheads kill stuff. And if you happen to hit the bone and you can't get through because you had a sharp double bevel, well, when you learn to sharpen, I almost said, Isaac, we're going to steal Isaac's stuff. Sharp broadheads are assumed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, come on now. <laughs> but, it was but a good seriously, point, Isaac. 
the single bevel broadhead advantages, all those other minor ones, the S or the L-shaped cut, the starburst pattern and uh, materials that aren't under tension, you know, the damage that they do to the lungs, uh, all of that is fairly minor. The big, big, big difference is just simply if you hit a shoulder blade and that scapular ridge, you can literally split it and, and lengthwise and your arrow can keep going. But that's only when you have number 12 backing it up, at least as far as consistency goes. But seriously, that we already we covered single bevel pretty good. If you hit bone, it's crucial. If you don't, it isn't. 110%. And the only other thing I would add is if, if you're not worried about penetrating the scapula of an animal, you tend to make the better shot placement. I can't tell you how many times I've seen and heard people talk about aiming further back on a whitetail so they know they won't encounter that shoulder blade. And that, again, that's one of those things that I just, what? But the reason they're doing it is because they're really worried about if they hit that even that thin scalpel of a whitetail that it's going to stop their their broadhead from penetrating uh. Uh, mechanical. So they're they're aiming further back so that they know Absolutely. they won't encounter the bone. And it, it you know that's just the wrong mentality in my opinion. Uh, there should be no reason why you can't get through the scapula of a whitetail. Man, it's no, like I an mean, eighth of an inch thick. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, even if you're on that, I mean, who hasn't experienced that? I mean, even when you're on the target course and there's a tree right in front of a target you're shooting at, you know, messing around on the 3D course, how many people shoot far left on it? I mean, there's there's something to be said about having confidence. I mean, if your confidence, your arrow's going to do the job, then you're going to get closer. And you're not going to shoot with the fear that you're going to do that. So that's just another benefit of it. You'll shoot, you know, you're the lethality is going to go up because you're shooting you're just, your shot placement's better it's not being affected negatively and confidence in your equipment means everything mm-hmm. it does absolutely it means everything we kind of accidentally bumped into that but that that just says it all which and you you put it perfectly nick how many people are worried i mean trying to shoot around i mean unless it's just completely blocking the vitals Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, on, a, on a 3D course. And the same should be said if you're in the woods shooting at a whitetail. Why would you in, intentionally shoot back on an animal to try to... Uh, anyway, confidence is everything. Um, tip design. This one's, again, fairly straightforward. I, you know, uh, cut on contact, Tano tip. We are talking about two blade heads. Uh, the Tano tip performed best. Um I would say any kind of needle tip, whether it's a point on a two-blade Magnus or Zwicky or whatever that may be, they have a tendency to curl. Um, On a three-blade, same thing goes. If you've got a needle point, I know it. I've seen it happen. They will curl and penetration stops. So whether you can do a Tanto tip or not, get rid of that needle point. You know, create a, a, a sharp flat point or on the case of a three blade, I'd rather see you take a pair of nippers and just nip the very tip of that, that three blade off so it can't curl. You're going to still get better penetration than you will if you're using that needle point and it rolls over. Yeah, and then you pyramid it. You kind of blunt that angle but still bring it to a point. Yep. It, it helps those three blades a lot. But interestingly enough on Ashby's uh, testing 
the second most effective tip on mm-hmm. the two blade was a rounded tip that he sharpened all the way around the arc. Yep. And his Tonto tip, more numbers, but penetrated 27 and a half more than any, than the second place, the rounded tip. And it had the lowest damage rate and the best skip angle rate. You know, a lot of times guys are taking steep quartering away shots or quartering toward shots and they don't realize it, but their broadheads are actually skipping like off the ribs in that. Yep. And a Tonto tip really does eliminate that. And I, I've seen it in my own bow hunting. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's saved me. <laughs> I still cringe on the quartering toward shots, but yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying. Sure. And I, and I, the rounded point I should, and I said, so what I typically do just, I'll try to explain this on a, on a straight out of the package two blade cut on contact point that has that needle point or everything comes to an exact uh, pyramid mm-hmm. I will take my file and go on each side just straight across and bring that down till it's almost square on the very front and I'm not talking about very wide just you yeah know, just take the very tip point off and then as I'm sharpening the the, the cutting edge I'm kind of doing what you're talking about. Ashby does is I bring it around the front. I'm just rolling that file across the point. So it does create that rounded oh, yeah. surface on the point. So mm-hmm. same thing. Yeah. I got you. Sure. Mm-hmm. Anything else on tip design before we move on to number 12 and, and wrap this thing up? Nope. nope. All right. Era 12. Arrow mass of 650 grains or higher. Todd, I know this is one you love to talk about. So I'm going to go to you first. Sweet. Yep, 650 grains. But again, I have to always say that his tests were done on the Asiatic water buffalo ribs. That's what this test was. So when somebody says, I think I can get by with 550 grains on my whitetails, go for it. I I know that 650 is what I shoot because it works every time. And it has for me anyway. So um, we're going to be back to that time of impulse, even though when we talked about arrow mass, this was the heavy bone threshold. So what it was, was taking thousands of shots at that Asiatic water buffalo ribs, and but punching through. And the reason, here's where we go back to that, the arrow that was fast and light and the arrow that was slower and heavier bone is flexible and bone is curved and bone doesn't want to be penetrated by an arrow and a broad head and so it has flex and give and what that does is it just defeats the speed that's left in your lighter faster arrow it just it goes shunk, uh, and then the, all the energy is dumped and the arrow is lucky if it gets through at all and if it does it just gets through a couple inches usually mm-hmm. but when you have that longer push you have that heavier arrow and it hits that bone and it's, it goes, you know, pop and then uh, with the single bevel broadhead. Now the bone splits and now the arrow can c- continue through. So that's the huge advantage of that 650 grains. And the, the beauty of it is in all of our animals in North America, you, you can now set yourself up with one arrow, one broadhead that you can pretty much just go and shoot anything in North America and know that pretty much any bone you hit, you're going to be able to get through. So, Todd, I just want to make sure I'm understanding this. So what if I'm shooting a uh, an 80-pound recurve? Are you what saying, if you are? Can I, get, can I get by with lighter than 650 grains? 
Well, possibly. That's that's the the hitch in this giddy up. Anything under 650 got through the bone about half the time. It was about 50-50. And something that Isaac touched on before, it's another law of physics. Every time your speed doubles, your resistance quadruples. So what, if I have what, something go 150 feet a second and I hit a particular item, but you're going 300 feet per second, the item you hit is resisting four times as much. So you do get into this weird <laughs> twilight zone. You've got this 80-pound bone now. Now you've got a 400-grain arrow, but you hit this bone, it's resisting more, and it can literally stop better that faster, lighter projectile than it can the heavier, slower-moving projectile. But what if I'm shooting a 40-pound bow? Well, in Ashby's testing, which was at 20 yards, which Isaac has been brilliant as far as saying that the 40 pounds simply is an eff- has an effect on your effective range, limits your effective range. Uh, it, I don't remember. It was 17.9% of 196 shots with a 40-pound recurve, and he breached that nearside bone 100% of the time. As long as it was 650 and you had the single bevel, high mechanical advantage broadhead, he breached that heavy bone 100% of the time. And you get that I was being a little bit facetious. Sure, of course. I know what what people think and what people... Well, you took the questions that I was going to ask, and you you did it, so it was perfect, because that is... I get asked that all the time, and I just post charts, and I'm like, dude, no one else has done this research. This is what I have to work from. Could it work lower? Absolutely, it can. We're not saying that 550 can't work. We're just saying it's not 100%. So if it does fail, we're not surprised, you know? And if it doesn't fail, we're like, dude, sick. Keep using what you're using. The important part with the arrow mass and something I'm assuming that we were going to get to get to with it eventually is, you know, make adjustments. And that's with all these 12. You got to make adjustments. If it's working, it's working. And who am I to mm-hmm. say that you should stop using what you're using? But if something goes astray, we got to come back to the drawing board and figure out what we need to change and we just make adjustments. That's so why I tell guys to do all the time with the arrow mast. Yeah, it's 12. But if we encounter heavy bone, it's number four. So we just you just keep plugging away at the game that you're intended to, your intended target. And if something goes wrong, you make adjustments. Well, and part of it goes back to the, you know, the, the, the modern archery world, the compound world. But I can't tell you how many times I've seen people say something like, you know, uh, you know I, I, I've stepped up in weight to a 60-pound a longbow. Um, I can't wait to see how much faster my arrows are. And I'm like, you're missing the point yeah. completely. It, if you're shooting the right – well, let me phrase this – if you're shooting the same arrow relative to bow poundage, you're not going to see a speed change. Meaning, if you're shooting a 10 grain per pound arrow out of a 40 pound bow, and then you shoot a 10 grain per pound arrow out of a 60 pound bow, you're shooting the same bow. Exactly. That was good. Um, yeah. Now, which one, the 600 grain arrow is definitely going to perform better in many cases than the 400 grain arrow. But that's not the point of increasing bow weight. Right. Likewise, if you're going to decrease bow weight, 
you need to consider a heavier arrow, which is going to result, it goes back to what you were saying. You've only got so much to work with here. Um, you're going to have a slower arrow out of that 40-pound bow because it should be heavier, heavier to achieve the same results. Exactly. So. You know, something, too, that I kind of have to say, because when we get done with the top 12 here, it makes it sound like we're, we're, we're creating this arrow that's in, it just, it can't fail. But if you shoot at, like, a running deer or you shoot, an elk and he starts to move and duck and there's movement involved or a spin or a twist you've you're shooting arrows and broadheads that have set you up to kill that animal where a lot of other arrows and broadheads would fail but it isn't infallible you still have to be a hunter you still have to wait for that proper moment to let go you know wait for that proper angle and that proper shot to present itself don't shoot, you know, a whitetail that's looking at you and is all wired. You yep. know, bad things are going to happen. So it's not it's not that you can't fail with this, but you've set yourself up for success with arrows that and broadheads that include as much of this top 12 as you can. I, well, it goes back to what Isaac said before. Shot placement is assumed. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that came out on that previous discussion was okay, you can shoot the arrow that's going to work when everything's perfect, or you can choose to, in, to, to better that arrow combination so that you're increasing the likelihood that you're going to recover the animal when things don't go 100% perfect. Exactly. Yep. Go ahead, Isaac. I'm sorry. No, you're good. I was just wanted to add that this, let's say you follow all 12, you're not even guaranteed a pass through that's don't go assuming that i i get a lot of pms about that too i did last last season finally had a lot of builds go out that i helped guys with and they come back and they go yeah i got my deer but i didn't pass through and i've always passed through with 400 grain 450 grain and such and such head and whatnot okay what did you hit this year? Well, it broke both shoulders, but I didn't pass through. You said I'd always pass through. No, we are not saying you're always going to pass through. We are saying, like you said, this is to set you up for success when things go wrong. And this is going to give you the best odds of being successful if things go wrong. Uh, agreed 100%. Um and I will say, and again, my setup's a little bit different because I've combined the two, the heavy arrow with the heavy bow pound, right. which is just what I, I, I've been shooting a long time. But, you know, it's, uh, I expect, and I won't say I expect a pass through. I always expect an exit. Exactly. Wound. Yeah, that's a good more way to put it More times than not, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a pass through more times than not, but I always expect an exit wound, even on a steep quartering. Other than a few really odd examples, I always get that. I mean, I, I think I've shared with you the photo of that one hog that I shot on a steep quarter and away angle, and I did not get an exit wound, but the, that three-to-one broadhead was an inch deep in the lower jawbone. Right. You were, like, um, going to exit the traveled. mouth. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, uh, you know, it's it's – I think the best way to, to, to say it, and we'll kind of wrap this up, is – 
Don't shoot the, the arrows. In my opinion, you shouldn't shoot the arrow setup that's only going to work when everything is perfect. You need to try to strive for the arrow setup that's going to give you a margin for error and is going to increase your likelihood in the event that something does go wrong. Well, guys, we're uh, we're at a little over two hours. We have I oh, think geez. we beat this up. I've, this has been fantastic. It's been a lot of fun. I know we 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 got some good laughs in there. It's just been a, a great conversation as it usually is when when we have you guys on. So I really appreciate it. I don't even think I have any closing thoughts. Nick, do you have any? Nope. It's always a pleasure, guys. Yep. Yeah, likewise. Yep. This was a lot of fun. I agree. I agree. It was just I you know, really enjoyed it. Um, I, I do want to say one thing to the listeners. We did not get a, a mid-roll segment in. I knew this was going to be a long episode, so I didn't even plan on including one. So, um, uh, again, sorry about that, but we'll, we'll get it back in hopefully in the next episode. But, guys, thank you so much. Um, look forward to the next time we can find a reason to, to have you guys <laughs> on and, and chat it up. All right. Thanks. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. All right. All right. See you. Y'all take care. Yep. See you later. You too.